Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green and I'm your host. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous Saturday in October in Western North Carolina. And so I'm looking out the window and it's just perfect outside. It's in the mid 50s. There's not a cloud in the sky and the sun's shining brightly. It's just a wonderful, perfect day. Had a great start to my day. A friend of mine who I've known for a very long time now, maybe a dozen years since I, shortly after we moved to Asheville. Uh, became a good friend of mine. We hadn't seen each other in several months, partially because of COVID, but mostly because he moved uh, not too terribly far away, but far enough that we don't get together as often as we could. So um, I'm happy about that. Had a really good start to the day. It's always a happy thing to spend time with an old friend. And so we spent about, I don't know, three and a half hours together this morning. Just had a wonderful start to my day, talking about all kinds of things, catching up with one another counseling one another back and forth because that's what we always do so it's wonderful to have old friends like that who will speak into your life and who will allow you to speak into theirs and so I encourage you to find somebody who that's true for you as well so here we are today and we're looking at um, what day 200 and some odd in the COVID shutdown and struggling through and you know, it feels different. I don't know if we've turned any kind of a corner. Some of the days I feel like we have, other days I feel like we haven't. And so here we are. And I'm looking at and thinking about some things. I want you to understand something real quick. And that is just that the way that the lessons that I um, use for sermons work is they are um, from the lectionary, from the uh, Book of Common Prayer. But the ones I'm using right now, are actually the, something called the Revised Common Lectionary. And so it's um, used by the Methodists, the Lutherans, some Presbyterians, uh, and others. And it's, it, it was an attempt to bring the churches together and get them on one page. And so they took the various lectionaries and put them together. And, and so we come away with a Revised Common Lectionary. And so they always include an Old Testament lesson, a psalm, an epistle, and a gospel. <clears throat> So the, the way that it works, there's seasonality to the church, and I'll do that in another podcast, give you some further explanation for what that is. But here we are, we're about six weeks now from the beginning of Advent, which is a time when we begin to look forward to the coming of Christ with a great longing in our hearts by, by uh, remembering the promise of what it would be like when this Messiah came. <clears throat> but in order to prepare us for Advent, the last, oh, I don't know, maybe two months of readings in the lectionary are designed to kind of move our hearts out of the idea that this world is pretty good. It's okay. We're kind of rocking and rolling. We figured it out and we're moving along. And then suddenly the, we get these prophetic words on a weekly basis in our readings. And those prophetic words are pointing us to the larger reality, which is they may be okay for us, but they're not okay for all the world. The world is not as a whole as it's intended to be. Your little piece of it might be, but the whole is not. There's still great suffering in the world. It's why Jesus, when he comes in the first teaching that we have that he does, the extended teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. And it talks about those who mourn, those who hunger. So it, it's pointing us to the reality that as satisfied as we might be, we shouldn't be. And so that's where we are. And so that's the reason the last two weeks, the um, gospel lessons have been about Jesus giving warning of judgment to come. And so that's kind of where we are in the lectionary as we begin to, to remind ourselves the world's not as it should be. That's not very difficult this year, to be honest with you. 
in COVID, it would be impossible to see the world is okay and just about perfect. What we're realizing right now is the world is a big mess and we're not in control of that big mess. And that something that happens far, far away in Wuhan, China, can have dramatic effects, not just in Wuhan, not just in China, but all across the world. And so this COVID-19 has spread itself all across the world. Should give us some sense of what it means to be a Christian in the world, that, that if that thing can have that kind of impact, what kind of impact should the church be having all over the world? And what kind of impact should our lives have? And what could they have? And so what we're pointing to right now is come quickly, Lord Jesus. We've got to know who this Jesus is that's going to come. We've got to know based on who he was and what he revealed. And so here we are in the middle of this mess and moving towards Advent. And as I said, we live in a world where we no longer have the illusion that things are okay and things are moving towards some sort of progress. So just wanted to kind of give you a heads up on what this is about, this whole um, lectionary thing that I read. And so we begin this week. I'm going to begin with uh, the prayer of the day, because there's always a prayer of the day for every Sunday. And it's Almighty and Everlasting God, who in Christ has revealed your glory among the nations. Preserve the works of your mercy, that your church throughout the world may persevere with steadfast faith, in the confession of your holy name, through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. God's revealed his glory among the nations, and we're asking that he preserve the works of his mercy, that the church throughout the world may persevere with steadfast faith in the confession of his name. And so that's an important summary of what it means to be a Christian, I believe, in the world today, because God has revealed himself, and it's up to us as Christians to point to that revelation supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we'll begin kind of today by looking first, we're going to start with the epistle first today, and that is 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 to 10, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, that's who's writing this letter to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. That's important. Because God's promised through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 that his word will not return to him void. And so Paul, as he's making his missionary journeys described in the book of Acts, he comes to this place called Thessalonica. He's had a rough time getting to Thessalonica. And by that I mean that he's had a rough time because he's been persecuted everywhere he goes along the way. And so then he gets to Thessalonica and the people that came that there where he went before stirred up people. And they stirred up people in Thessalonica because they knew what he had done before and the way in which the Holy Spirit had worked and the church began to be formed in those places that Paul had been. And so they decided to go ahead when they heard that he was in Thessalonica and they stirred up the people. And they didn't stir up the nicest people either because what we're told is essentially they stirred up the rabble 
to cause problems. And they did. <clears throat> and they continued to cause problems for the church in Thessalonica. And so Paul's saying it was important that our word not just be a word. There had to be something more than that. And he says it came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What does he mean when he says things like that? It was a demonstration of God's power in the same way in the Exodus, God demonstrated his power to both the Israelites and to the Egyptians. And so ultimately, God said to Moses in the beginning, he would gain glory among the Egyptians. In other words, they would see that he was the one true living God. And that was accomplished through what we know today as the plagues. It was known made known in the crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's army in that same sea. So God was making manifest himself, not only to the Israelites, but also to the Egyptians. And so when the Paul is on his missionary journeys, there's healings and other things that happen among the church so that the world, wherever he might be, will see these things. And so that's what it means when he said it came in, the gospel came in power. Think about miracles, the things Jesus did, the signs, John calls them, that Jesus performed in order to make manifest who he was, that he was not like just a guy preaching. There was other stuff that happened. Before we came here, we were in a church in Pauley's Island, South Carolina, and in that church, we kind of regularly saw that. We saw pretty amazing things happen. We've seen people healed who couldn't be healed to the extent that at least one surgeon that I know came to know Jesus because he knew that he had not been the one to keep a man from dying. It wasn't on him. It was on God because he didn't have the skill or the ability to do that. We saw other people in that same instance come to know Jesus because they saw this man healed. They saw a group of people, the witness of the church praying for the man's healing and the medical knowledge that he wouldn't be healed. They came to know Jesus. That's what it means when the gospel comes in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. A surgeon who does the operation and tends to the patient for three or four months, telling me all the time that this man will not live again. And when he does, that surgeon has full conviction that it wasn't him or his best efforts that did that. He contributed, certainly, but he saw that God worked with him to do this thing, this healing. And so Paul says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and the Lord, and you received the word in much affliction. That's the persecution that I told you about there. With the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They saw the work of the Holy Spirit in these people's lives, and their lives became a testimony to the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives. And so he says, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth for from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not, need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
I wanted to start there in that place because what I want us to see and what I want us to grasp is the power that can happen and come from a body of believers. It begins with Paul and Silvanus and Timothy who have come and brought the gospel to this place, but it begins and ends with God and the work of the Holy Spirit in lives to change lives and convict them of truth and of sin and of Jesus. And so that's important. All those things are truly important, but we've got to recognize what power is possible when a body of believers comes together unified as one around the testimony of Jesus Christ and his power in all things, not just for salvation, but, but certainly firstly for salvation, but not just for salvation, with healing and so much else along with it. And, and so you see Paul encouraging this church by saying, your witness is known throughout the world. You have become a place where other people come to know Jesus. There's a power in that. And I believe it's a power in more than one man preaching. It's a power in a body of believers praying, working together, living together, and ministering together wherever they are and to whomever God gives them. But we've got to begin with a leader. And so, but that leader needs to know that God is with him and he'll be with the people that he leads. And so what we see in the lesson from Exodus, the Old Testament lesson, which is Exodus 32, 12 to 23, this is after the, well, right before the golden calf, before Moses comes down the mountain and breaks the commandments in two, when he comes down the mountain of tablets, he prays to the Lord. Before he goes down, the Lord has told him what he's going to do. We read that last week, and then God said, leave me alone that I may deal with these people. And, and the last thing Moses does is leave him alone. And God relented is what we finished with last week. And so now, before he goes down, Moses says to the Lord, because God said, I'm not going to go with you because it's a stiff-necked people. So Moses says, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. And I want you to listen for that little refrain, found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I've found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. So he says, if I have indeed, because you said I had, if I have found favor in your sight, then show me your ways. Show me what I should do, how I should live, how I should lead this people in order to find favor in your sight. Tomorrow, because he knew that yesterday's grace wasn't sufficient for today. And in order to get that grace, because that's another way of translating finding favor, if you want tomorrow's grace, it's by doing this thing, your ways, so that I can find favor in your sight tomorrow. Moses didn't presume that because he had favor now that he would have favor tomorrow. Nor should you. Yes, if you're in Jesus Christ, you are saved. But favor in the sight of the Lord actually has to do with living, too. 
You don't just have it once and keep it forever. If you want to see more of him, if you want to see him day after day, then ask him to show you his ways that he may know that you may know him in order to find favor in your sight tomorrow. It's a matter of what do we do with our lives? Once we've been given freedom, once we have been given the eternal life, what do we do with our lives? It's a question that I posed last week. And so Moses says, the only way I can know what to do with my life is to see your ways. Tell me what life's supposed to look like if I'm going to find favor with you because I don't want to be out of favor with you. And then he finishes that by saying, not just about him, consider too that this nation is your people. Don't throw them under the bus. It's not about me. It's about all of us. And then he said, God, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He had promised before that I won't go with you. I'll send an angel to take care of you. And so now what a comfort that would be to Moses to hear my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to them, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. I can't know if you don't go with us. And that's the promise Jesus makes at the end before the ascension. He makes the promise that, lo, I will be all with you always, even to the end of the age, after he sends them on mission and tells them to go, baptize, make disciples, and teach them to obey all that I've taught you. And then he makes the promise of presence. There's no hope for the church if there's no presence of God. If the presence of the Holy Spirit is not manifestly known in the church, in its worship, and in its ministry, then the church has no power because it has no God. It might confess him, but it doesn't have any power. And it's not the church that it ought to be. So he said, is it not in your going with us so that we're distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. It's what makes Israel different. It's what makes the church different. It's the presence of God in the midst of his church going with us in all that we do. We are intended to be distinct from the rest of the world. And the way that we are distinct is we follow the ways of the Lord, just like Moses prayed. And then the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. And this is so wonderful. And I know you by name. I know you by name. The God of the universe knows this man, Moses, by name. And he knows you as well. He called you and he chose you and he predestined you. Because he loved you from before the world began. You're his. You bear his name. And more importantly, you bear his image. And so after God tells him that, Moses says, please show me your glory. He wants to see and to know more. Because there's an intimacy of relationship where God says, and I know you by name. And and Moses does what any lover will do when they are loved. Show me yourself.
I want to know you intimately. I want to know you completely. So show me your glory. And he, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And those two concepts, grace and mercy, it's easy to not be able to see a real difference between the two. Here is, I think, a pretty good definition of that. It makes some sense to me. And that is, is that, that mercy has to do with justice. It has to do with sin. And so mercy is God's love given to sinners. Grace is an abundance and an outpouring far more than deserved. So grace is not an intensification of mercy because mercy has to do with judgment. Grace has to do with God's goodness. It's said by philosophers that only God can be one who shows both mercy and grace. It's a distinction between him and every other being on earth. And, and we're supposed to be trying to become like him in order that we can be filled with that same mercy and that same grace to other people. But it all begins with mercy, and, and all mercy is grace, but grace is more than mercy. There's common grace that's poured on all mankind that restrains much conduct. We, we have a common idea of these things shouldn't be, and so we can have law, and that's common grace revealed by God. It doesn't feel like it to all mankind because we deny him in some cases, and yet we all can agree on certain things. That's common grace. It's the grace that, that we can live day to day without fear of judgment on the final judgment on everything that we do. It allows us to live together in community, whether we are believers in him or not. That's common grace. We all agree on certain basic things. Don't harm one another. Don't do these things. Jesus takes that, that common grace, and magnifies it, not differently from Jewish teaching, frankly. He magnifies it to, to don't just not do harm. Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on and he defines neighbor with the parable of the Good Samaritan to say your neighbor is anybody who needs you, who needs anything that you can provide. You may not be the only one who can provide it, but he would be the one who God put in your path at that moment. And you're supposed to extend yourself for the good of that other person. What would you want them to do if you were in need. And that's kind of the story that I was telling on Wednesday, was is that God put us in a specific place to do something for two specific people. And giving them directions didn't feel like loving my neighbor as myself. And so we went back and we took them where they needed to go to make sure that that's, that story ended well for them. And so that's kind of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. That neighbor might have been from Wuhan and might work in a lab, as they did. But our call, no matter who those people are, whether they had been Christians or not, gloriously, we found out they were. But if they hadn't been, we would still have that same responsibility under the, under the Lord for those people. Because you never know that that, that thing that you do 
You don't know what the impact of that might be. It might prevent, provide, I mean, an opportunity to proclaim him. We're supposed to do what God would do. Remember those little WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? We're supposed to, in any given situation, we're supposed to consider ourselves second and ask, Lord, what would you have me do? If you were in this situation, what would you do? And so that's the way that we extend God's grace. That's the way our faith becomes known to others because we set ourselves in that situation in second place, not first place. So we are to be gracious as he is gracious. We're supposed to go above and beyond the simplest things. We're supposed to have mercy first, but we're supposed to show grace, which is abundance. Don't just do the basic thing and say, is that enough? Don't do the bare minimum. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, he went above and beyond the call of duty. He didn't just help him and assist him on the road and get him to a place. He paid for that place, and then he came back to say, did you need anything more? Because I'm willing to pay for that too. That's grace. Mercy would have been helping him. Grace extended itself far beyond that. And so when God says, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and show mercy to whom I'll show mercy, what he's telling you is that he discriminates, that it's not given to everybody. There is that common grace, but there's more. There's that superabundant grace that's given to those that he loves. And I know that I had somebody get upset with me because I said we're not all children of God, and we're not. We're all image bearers, but we're not all his children. And so he he chooses, in other words, he discriminates between people in order that his glory might be revealed. And so we shouldn't take pride in being chosen because it's his choice. And we don't know why it's inscrutable as far as we're concerned. We don't know. And, and then after he says, he'll show mercy on who will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and it will cover you in my hand until I pass you. Then I will take away my hand. You'll see my back, but my face you shall not see. I don't know exactly what it means that you can't see the face of God and live. I honestly don't. I don't, does God have physical characteristics, all those kinds of things? That's not at all clear. But God uses that language to say that. And so what does it mean that you can't see God's face? And I believe that it had something to do with a developing revelation. There's a certain revelation that's going to be given to Moses and given to that generation. There will be other generations who receive further revelation, moving towards one thing, and that is Jesus who is the culmination of all revelation. The revelation of John in the book of the Revelation it is the, what Jesus' further work will be in the coming again and in the end of things and the recapitulation of all things. And so everything leads to that point. And so the revelation, the seeing the face of God is not given to Moses. It's given to those who were there in the Incarnation those who were there during the ministry of Jesus, but it's also given to us. We may not see him face to face in that way. And Paul says, until we do, we're going to see through a mirror darkly. But, but when we come face to face with Jesus in prayer, when we come face to face with him in confession and adoration, 
and we see the face of God. And the gospel lesson talks about that very thing in an obtuse sort of way. But the other side of that I wanted to get to before I got to that, actually, I'm sorry to jump ahead. I was anxious to get to the gospel. But the other side of it is, is that what does it mean to see the face of God? We're created in his image. There's a reason we're not supposed to make any likeness or representation of him. And if Moses had seen the face of God, what would be his first temptation to make an image and likeness? And then you've reduced him to that image and likeness. But no, we're to see him in the infinite variety of humanity who are created in his image. It would have been a, a temptation to idolatry that we would never have been able to get past if he had revealed himself to Moses face to face, as it were. <clears throat> so, no, you can't see that, Moses. But then when Jesus comes in this last, in the uh, gospel lesson for today, the Pharisees plotted how to entangle him, Jesus, in his words. Now, we know that's the dumbest idea anybody ever had. Let's trick God. And then they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully. Flattery will get you everywhere. And you don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's what they came up with. So they go with all this flattery. We know you're true. Teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, you're not swayed by anybody's appearance, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Yet that first part has nothing to do with the question. The question's all that matters. Everything else is flattery. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. If you read Matthew's gospel, you'll see the word hypocrite over and over and over when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And what it means is you're not who you pretend to be. You are pretenders all the time. You claim to be this, but you're not. And you know it. Because a hypocrite was an actor, actually. So Jesus points to them and says, you're acting and you know you're acting. Because an actor does know that he's acting. He's playing a role that is not himself. And that's what a hypocrite is. It's people who have two faces. You put on a mask to act the part. And so that's what Jesus says. You know it. I put me to the test, you hypocrites. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, which is a Roman coin. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. They thought that was a great answer. They thought he had dodged and deflected and given a good answer that they couldn't argue with. But what was his answer? He says, does everything come down to money for y'all? The question was legitimate within Judaism. Is it okay to recognize a ruler by paying taxes to that ruler? If God is your king, then can you pay taxes to a Roman ruler? We got you either way. If you say yes, then you're not a good Jew. You're recognizing a larger ruler over you who's told you not to do that. And if you say no, then we're going to bust you with Caesar. So Jesus makes it simple. And he says, whose face is on that coin? Whose image and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. 
In other words, that thing belongs to Caesar. That coin that you just brought me belongs to Caesar, not to me. So I'll give Caesar what belongs to Caesar's. But the unspoken question when he says give to God, the things that are God's. So the question is, if the coin belongs to Caesar, because his image and inscription is on it, who do you belong to? The one whose image and inscription you are. Our lives belong to him because he created us. We would not exist if it weren't for him. He's not a contingent being, and we are. We exist because of him. He exists because he exists. And so we're beholden to him for our lives. We're beholden to him for salvation. We're beholden to him for mercy. We're beholden to him for his grace. And Jesus says, give that to him. Consider that. That will humble you in a hurry when you pose that stupid question. You've said this is the important thing, and it's got something to do with taxes paid to a Roman governor. And Jesus says the really important thing is what are you going to do with your life? Who does it belong to? Who do you belong to? And if so, render to him that which bears his likeness. Give him your life. Allow him to show you his ways and to direct your ways in order that you might find favor in his sight because paying taxes gives you favor with the Romans. Give to God what belongs to him. It's a big challenge. Lay down your life this week. You've been a Christian all your life. Lay down your life again today. Because I guarantee you there's parts of it that you're holding on to that are not available to him. If you don't know him at all, lay down your life today for the one to whom you owe your life and the one who came and laid down his life that you might have eternal life. So come before him today and offer your life as Paul says in Romans 12, as a living sacrifice to that true and living God. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. Again, I'm John Green. I'm your host. And you can go to the Facebook page link that's there on this link, on this page, and um, send me messages, comment on the sermon, make prayer requests, all those kinds of things. So it's been a pleasure being with you this week. There may be another little short one sometime in the middle of the week. There may be another little short one. This week coming up, I've got kind of a busy week and it's kind of a screwy week, but we'll see how it goes. So anyway, otherwise, have a wonderful week and, and, and come before the living God and marvel that he knows your name and give honor and glory and adoration and praise to him, largely by giving him your life to do with it whatever he wants for his glory.